1: Welcome to another episode of New Books in Chinese Studies. I am your host, Julia Kablinska, and I'm speaking today to Professor Tristan Brown about his book, Laws of the Land, Feng Shui and the State in Qing Dynasty China. Brown's book considers the cosmology and geomantic practice of feng shui as an administrative technology and a language of power that was intrinsic to governance through the Qing legal code. Feng shui has long been dismissed as a superstition whose historical significance is limited to its obstruction narrowly of infrastructural development and broadly of modernization. Laws of the Land instead pushes us to understand feng shui as a form of knowledge production that allowed the state to govern in an era of increasingly scarce resources and increasingly frequent crisis. The book covers cases related to land use and misuse in relation to graves, examination success and mining concerns. It introduces readers to a cast of claimants, defendants and legal experts, including clerks who meticulously mapped conflicted landscapes and geomancers who gave evidence in court. In his analysis of Feng Shui and Qing dynastic collapse, Brown builds upon the work of other scholars who reject narratives of Chinese reaction to Western influence and posits instead that the legal system's entanglement with Feng Shui shows a vibrant interaction of various epistemological systems at that moment. I am very much looking forward to my conversation with Professor Brown about the life and death of the Qing landscape. But before we delve into the book, I'd like to briefly introduce our guest. Tristan Brown is a historian of late imperial or early modern China at MIT. His research focuses on the ways in which law, science, environment, and religion interacted in China from the 16th to the 19th centuries. Brown's recent and forthcoming publications include special issues of the history Uh, the Journal of History and Science and Technology and History of Humanities, which is co-edited with other scholars, as well as articles in many of the field's leading journals. He occasionally writes on issues in contemporary China, with pieces appearing in MIT case studies in Social and Ethical Responsibilities of Computing and the Middle East Asia Project. Professor Brown has held fellowships at the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science, St. John's College, Cambridge, and Stanford University. He has conducted fieldwork with the support of the British Academy, the American Council of Learned Societies, the Social Science Research Council, and the Henry Luce Foundation. At present, he is an elected fellow of the Future Earth Foundation and an appointed member of the MIT Climate Nucleus Fast Forward Program. Welcome to the podcast, Tristan.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: The podcast usually begins with a question about your intellectual history. I have a big, bit of a leg up here because we were classmates in Professor Madeline Zelen's classes on Qing legal and economic history at Columbia. So I'm going to guess, uh, going out on a limb, that working with her was a formative intellectual experience. But I remember in those early stages of the PhD, your proposed project actually concerned the history of Muslim communities in China, which now seems to have become your second book. So do tell us how you came to study feng shui and law.
0: Absolutely. Well, Julia, thanks so much for talking with me today. And it's so great to see you. And as you mentioned to our listeners, we go back quite a ways. Um, So, yeah, basically, uh, back in those days, I mean, I was in Professor Zellin's uh, law and economic history class, uh, his seminar. And I was thinking about the history of Muslim communities in China. And I set out, I think, probably the summer after that seminar uh, to China to do field work. And I made my way to Sichuan. Right. I mean, uh, my advisor, my Ph.D. advisor, Maddie Zellen is a great historian of Sichuan. uh, It's salt works and everything like that. So she she was always very supportive of of Sichuan as a good site. Right. For for students getting into the nitty gritty of of China's history. So I went out to Sichuan and I made my way to this this beautiful, beautiful ancient town of Longzhong, which is located near the municipality of Nanchong today. Um, And There was this uh, Muslim community there and there was uh, in the near the center of the town, this massive mausoleum of a Sufi saint. Um, And I said, wow, this is a really cool site. I'm going to be able to like totally do something really interesting about the history of Islam and the Qing dynasty through this, like a local history of the site. As I got to understand the site more, I realized today it's part of a protected forest area. Um, it, it's ha- it has a fascinating history, um, you know, over the last 300 years. And I basically realized that the Muslim community or the Sufi order that had managed this site was making like Feng Shui claims uh, over their ownership of the land and their relationship to the broader community during the Qing Dynasty. So I started to think to myself, Wow, you know, why would they do Feng Shui, right? Why would that be important to do, right? Um, And at that time, I knew nothing about feng shui, I I, I mean, other than the New York, you know, uh, New York Times design, you know, section or something like that. I knew nothing about it. One thing led to another. And um, right near Longzhong, there is, as I mentioned, Nanchong. And Nanchong is the home of the Nambu County Archive. Nambu is a county that was located right next to Longzhong. And there was a professor of Chinese archives, Wu Peilin, who at that time was a professor at Xihua uh, Shifan Dashi in East China, uh, West China Normal University, and he was an expert on the Nambu County Archive. And um, you know, I started to look at that archive, and I didn't find that much about Muslims, but I found a lot about feng shui. And so, at one point, I I sort of got to visit him, and I got to talk with him, and talk about how to read these sources, and talk about how to understand these sources. And I realized there are a lot of feng shui cases. And so, at some point um, in that journey, the the dissertation changed, right? And and that's how I got into feng shui through the law.
1: Great, thank you for that introduction to your history with this project. Uh... The reason I was particularly excited to interview you about this book is because you came to give a presentation about it at the Ohio State University at a recent symposium on Qing history. So as you will remember, I asked you for advice about what I might assign if I'm teaching a class about modern Chinese history, but I want to introduce students to this encounter between late Qing cosmology and Western science to lay the groundwork for thinking about science, for thinking about technology and how these bigger areas interact with uh, cultural and social issues. You offered your book, and so here we are. But before we get to the chapter that I will be assigning, and it is most relevant to that question, which is the last one in the book, I want to ask you for some assistance in defining terms that your readers and my students will need to understand critically. How do you define feng shui? How does that definition contribute to the history of knowledge production? And how does it decenter Western approaches to the history of science?
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much for this question. I mean, well, basically, okay, so feng shui literally means wind and water. And the way that I define it, and I define it in the book is I would encourage people to think about it on three registers in the Qing dynasty. The first is is that feng shui was a body of knowledge, ever expanding, ever changing, updated. Uh, We see updates of feng shui knowledge, including updates of the feng shui compass in the course of this book. Um, Feng Shui was an academic subject that literati and literate people could read up on and and study and know something about, right? Two, Feng Shui was a practice. It was that knowledge could be put into practice through professional or popular practitioners of it. Um And of course, uh, this is, you know, the 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 beauty of legal cases because legal cases allow you to see, People, um, you know, we can't go back and interview people in Qing Dynasty China and ask, "What do you think about feng shui? What do you believe in feng shui?" But what we can do is through through archival legal cases, we can look at the arguments they present to courts and how courts weigh that as evidence, right? Um, And so I think it's I think it's you know that element of where the knowledge comes into practice, and this gets to the third element defining feng shui, which is feng shui is discourse. Feng shui is a rhetoric of power. Okay, and this is understandable. Like, um, you could use an analogy, for instance, of medicine. Right? Medicine is a body of knowledge. It's also a practice that professionals, uh, you, you know, and you know, pursue with degrees and such. And it's also something that we talk about. Right? I'm not a medical professional. Neither is my mother. But I give my mother health advice. My mother gives me health advice. We look at advertisements that tell us about supplements that help us live to 100 or something. You know, whatever, right? There's medical medicine as discourse all around us, and that feng shui as discourse pervaded Qing society. So that's the first part of your question. Feng shui is a body of knowledge. Feng shui as a practice, and feng shui as a discourse. That, in you know, that's that's the key. As for the history of science, I think this builds on what I was just mentioning, which is, you know, history history of science is often based on sort of like, you know, here's a book on engineering, right, or here's a book. About how people built things. And what I do is I show you how people made arguments, right, about changes in natural landscape and what they meant. I think it builds on, um, you know, it builds on a growing body of scholars in the China field specifically, like Francesca Bray, Carla Nappi, Dagmar Schaefer, who are all asking not. What maybe the early generation asked of what China lacked in terms of the history, in terms of science, what China lacked in terms of knowledge, but rather redefining it as as science in China, as knowledge in China. What did China have? What did people care about? That's what we should pay attention to. And when we pay attention to it, we realize that there's some really profound stuff here. Um, and I think that's exactly what the book does by building exactly on, for instance, you know, those three scholars and many more.
1: Great. Um, and now that you've brought up the Ting state, I mean, what was the state's attitude to feng shui? You talk right. a lot throughout the book about how this expertise was classed, right? These elites yes. are the experts yeah. um, and they're always anxious that that common people are going to misuse it. Right. Exactly. So what do these elites? And I'm assuming that the elites include, of course, the uh, degree holders who are the judges. Uh, what do they do with feng shui?
0: Yeah, I love this question, uh, because in a sense, I think it's it's it might be surprising for some people. Right. Um, I think for a long time there there prevailed with some exceptions. I mean, Richard Smith has been on the forefront of showing us how important the aging and divination and cosmology was in the in life uh, elite across in, in across classes in, in late imperial China. But, you know, people look at some lines in the law code that criticize diviners and criticize people who are obsessed with feng shui, and they sort of kind of get the idea that, like, feng shui was this really controversial practice, right? Or that, like, you know, that people were kind of um, rejecting it, you know, left and right. And the book, I think, is a little corrective to that view. Um, the reality is, what I show is skepticism was everywhere, and the elite were very skeptical, right? And but. Um, what the elite really think is that the common people are doing feng shui incorrectly, which is why they're not members of the elite, okay? So, um, you know, if you did Feng shui correctly, you'd be a degree holder, right? Um, and to a certain extent, um, the the common people seek out the 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 judges. They seek out the degree holding magistrate, and they're in through these lawsuits. They're kind of asking for advice. They're asking for their expertise. They want help. And and regardless of what these magistrates personally believed about every theory of feng shui, they knew that that came with great responsibility, and they used it, I believe, wisely. Um, You know, what is the Qing state's attitude to feng shui? Here's my answer. I think that the Qing state at its highest levels thought that feng shui existed. It wrote books about it, officially published imperial books about it. Uh, Its calendar is infused with feng shui cosmology and astrology and all the rest. Um, The thing is, is that the Qing state sees itself as the possessor of the knowledge, as as the arbiter. And it is concerned about the common people misunderstanding, misusing, becoming deluded or obsessed by these knowledges, which is why it has to get involved. Okay. So that I think is really uh, what's going on. And uh, we can talk more about, you know, I'm fascinated by, for instance, uh, the question of people living in the Qing Dynasty were living in a world where there was much evidence of feng shui's reality. we were talking before this uh, podcast about you know the ways in which people, everyday people, saw feng shui. They saw it in the yamans of the state, how they were laid out, where they were located. They saw it in the grand academies that produced the degree holders, they saw it in the houses of the families that managed to get their sons into the officialdom. It turns out that, you know, those houses tend to be the nicest houses around, just as, you know, if you look at uh, the zip codes in Massachusetts or, or any state in, in, I'm sure, the United States, uh, certain zip codes produce a lot of Ivy League graduates, right? Um, people notice those things. Um, they're socially real. Uh, they're real in the same way that a uh, uh, an LV. I think I got the right reference there. An LV bag is expensive, right? In our world, um, And the courts had to the courts had to recognize that this was a reality for people, um, and thus it was a reality for the law.
1: All right. Well, you brought up some new sources, new types of sources, right? Which is manuals about feng shui that are produced by the state. You've already mentioned the archive that you called a lot of case data from. Uh, what? sources inform your arguments throughout the book how do you put them together mm-hmm. and how do you write a story about sichuan that tells us something greater about the Qing?
0: oh great questions um well here's the thing i i i consider myself i i've had great teachers who have told who have taught me about different types of sources uh whether that was wai li and hong lu meng uh, back as an undergraduate or mark elliot in the central government and Maddie Zellen with Economic Life and Contract and all of those things in local archives. Um, I try to, I think all of my teachers, of course, all the mistakes are mine, as we always say, but you see a little bit of influence from everybody in this book, I think. And I, I really do. The only way to tell the story in the way I wanted to was to bring a diverse array of sources to the, to the foreground. And I wanted to show people that, Feng shui is not something that you could just make things up with, right? You can't just show up to court and say whatever you want. You have to actually have real knowledge. You have to be persuasive. That's why litigation masters helped people craft their lawsuits. And litigation masters seem to know quite a bit about feng shui. Um, And the state is actually aware of this problem as well. Um, You know, um, and so what I do throughout the book at various times is when I show you a verdict... Or I show you a map, or I show you something that is produced at a trial. I show you a feng shui manual, sometimes one privately, commercially published over a thousand miles away from Sichuan that has the very same principle that's being invoked in the court. Right. So the thing is, it's not to say, I want to make this very clear it's not to say that the Qing state controlled feng shui knowledge. It's not to say that there was this top down, completely one way. Oh, this is this is absolutely the right thing. The Qing does have, you know, the um uh the Qingding um uh uh what is it uh right? The Qing, the Qing does produce right, its official book about um time and uh place selection, um, you know, as well as some other related texts. But there was a ton of private material that was produced in the publishing houses of Jiangnan and probably Fujian as well. Um, that circulated. It's very clear that those books circulated. Um, and they circulated with the, you know, the examination system and all of those other things. Um, and so basically I use feng shui manuals, I use legal cases, I also use a little bit of um, novels right, uh, from, the, from the Qing period, to just try to bring some of these examples alive. Um, and, um, I you know, of course, I use the, you know, uh, occasional missionary account, um, but I don't try to use too many of them. I wanted, because so much, I think, on Feng Shui, it's often from that Western e- encounter and that Western experience. So I use it sparingly. When it's when it when it's I think really re- there's a wonderful sort of observation for instance at the end of the Qing period about the about the mass cutting down of trees right in Nambu County by a, a Western observer that's an I feel an incredible quote but I try to use I try to use those sources sparingly um, when when relevant so yeah. The, the, those are those are the sources that inform the book.
1: Yeah, and I want to alert readers that when Tristan says he will show you things, that means like, really, you will see really great images that are reproduced in the book uh, from some of these manuals. Yeah. Uh, but I want to hang on to another thing that you just said, which concerns the cutting down of trees. Mm-hmm. So your narrative actually begins with a chapter on graves, mm-hmm. which are central to feng shui cosmology. But you stress that the ritual function of graves is deeply intertwined with resource management, lumber. Can you explain what trees in the economy have to do with litigation over tombs?
0: Absolutely. Yes. Well, let me just say uh, before I give you, I'm going to give you my answer. Uh, and I also want to f- point out that there are many other great scholars in environmental history uh, who are on, on this. Chris Coggins and Meng jong has got a new great book on forestry and Ian Miller, who has been a great inspiration for me over the years. Um, you know, basically, uh Yes. I, Nambu, let's just talk about Nambu for a minute because it's a great illustrative example. Nambu did not mine coal. Okay. There was no coal production in Nambu. Um, this meant that coal had to be brought into the county, especially for its salt works, from quite some distance away, um, Guangyuan, in the northern part of Bounding Prefecture. It's it's a considerable distance. I've done the drive uh, in a car <laughs> today. Um, and so I can only imagine, right? They, they Of course, they did it on rivers. But um, fuel was a real issue right it was a, it was it was a concern in nambu right people, the trees mattered and access to timber really mattered that's why we have so many cases about cutting down trees and people say, coming to court and they will say my child is ill my child is now you know my child's life is threatened because some some very important trees have been cut down the state takes those claims pretty seriously. Um, That's what I found. Um, We have to remind ourselves we are dealing with a century uh, that is seeing immense economic, demographic, and environmental change in Sichuan and in China more broadly. I think officials were aware of these changes, right? They knew the stakes. So to get to your immediate question, Um, What was very common in Nambu County was for people, lineages, or let's say joint families, extensive families, to have common cemeteries. Not many, very often, these cemeteries would not necessarily have tombstones. They were demarcated in part by, you know, basically dirt mounds surrounded by trees. And everybody connected to the people buried in that place had a connection to those trees. Um, and th- sometimes we have great examples uh, from the archive of tr- trees could be claimed to be hundreds of years old at times. You know, I mean, I, of course, you know, people in the law tell tall tales, um, no pun intended for the trees. But, um, you know, some of these trees were evidently quite old um, and, and they were not cut down. And uh, in, in basically, if they're cut down, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. Um, everybody has to agree to cut them down. The funds f- that you get from the timber need to be split evenly between all the pe- all the branches. Um, oftentimes, that did not happen. OK, um, so there are many, many feng shui disputes in Nambu, also in Ba County, I will say, that are about these precise issues. Let me point something out very quickly, because it's a very interesting point regarding the state pays attention to these trees. Oftentimes when there's a dispute over a cemetery, the state will dispatch a clerk uh, or runner from the Department of Works to really map in detail um, these cemeteries, and they will note the trees. And sometimes they'll tell you how big the trees are, how tall they are, how wide their girths are, Um, and they'll tell you – How many leaves? They'll talk about leaves. Look at the cover of the book. It says the cover image of the book tells you everything you need to know. The the, the court wants to know, is this a functional lineage or is this a dysfunctional lineage? If those trees are looking like they were planted yesterday and have barely any branches, this lineage has been cutting them down all the way. They're not the most filial group. On the other hand, esteemed lineages with deep histories and degree holders tend to have beautifully verdant, lush uh, trees on their property. It was a real point of pride for the Sichuan elite in the Qing to identify old trees that proved that they had lived in the province sometime since the Ming, or even we encounter the Song dynasties, right? Again, talk about tall tales, the trees did a lot of, I, there's a line in the book that I might, I might quote myself from memory, you know, the dead can't speak so the trees did the talking. And and that was really true uh, in a lot of cases in, in the legal archive and that just goes to illustrate how feng shui again was a lived reality for people. You know, it really did tell the truth, you know, of, if you had good feng shui, manifestly, you know, evident on the landscape. That told you something about the family.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> many puns in that answer. Thank no, know, yes. for those. Uh, yeah. But you also um, lead me to my next question, which is uh, on your second chapter, which focuses mm. on this kind of technical byproduct, right, of the feng shui-related litigation, which is maps. Who made these maps and what function did they serve? How did judges interpret them?
0: Oh, Yes the maps are just uh, definitely one of the great pleasures of the topic. Uh, It's one of the first things I noticed uh, when I was working in the archive. How many maps existed of grave sites? And I said, why is the Qing state mapping grave sites, right? Shouldn't they be mapping, I don't know, other things? Um, but, But they mapped grave sites quite a lot. And I started to say to myself, maybe this was just a Nambu thing. Maybe Nambu just Just had a court that liked to do this. And then I actually looked to official handbooks. Now, that's another source uh, that I look at that I didn't mention previously. You know, handbooks for officials um, that basically help local magistrates, uh, you know, do the job. You know, what am I supposed to do after I become a magistrate appointed by the emperor, uh, by the central government to serve in this county? Um, And the handbooks, uh, including, you know, Wang Huizu's famous guide, uh, you know, on, um, you know, famous, like, you know, one of the great handbooks of the Qing period, you know, basically says to officials, um, hey, you know, there are different types of of property disputes you'll encounter. There's some that are about field boundaries. There's some about irrigation. Those are easy. Those aren't those are not that difficult. They should have contracts for that. You should be able to tell pretty quickly what the issue is. But there are also cases about this other thing feng shui, cases about mountain lands. These are difficult. In order to judge these cases, you cannot just trust what the litigants are saying. You have to map the lands in dispute. And so that's when I realized Nambu is not making up a governing strategy for their own little county in Western China. These magistrates and this yamen and these clerks are reading the government's the you know basically literature for bureaucrats, and this is a strategy that was devised. I I don't know when exactly it was devised. A lot of the handbooks that I've seen are from the 18th century, but it could be earlier than that. Um, that basically the the Qing state just accepted that there were going to be tons of disputes about feng shui, so we need we need a streamlined way to at least say something about these landscapes, and the way to do that was to map them. And in what I show you is uh, th- this occurred quite frequently. There's examples from Taiwan. There's examples from uh, again Chongqing Ba County, and there's examples from Nambu. I mainly will look at the Nambu examples, but there are some from the others. Um, and and I basically point out I think a what I, I think it's a very interesting question for historians of science: what motivates people to map the natural world? What motivated people in Qing China? to record the natural world. Feng Shui was not the only factor, but it was an important one. And everybody was in on it. The elite families are mapping their their lineage, ancestral estates to the great degree. Um, The state is mapping the grave sites and dispute in the cemetery lands and all of that to a great degree. Even the emperor himself and the imperial family are mapping their tombs quite regularly. I don't go into that. I let it I let the cover speak for itself, right? The resonance that you see here across the political and legal system. But um I think that, you know, mapping as a byproduct gives us a big clue into um of course the history of cartography that goes without saying, but also these questions about um what questions people are interested in? What questions matter in Qing society? And what knowledge is going to be again produced and reproduced through the legal system.
1: Yeah. And of course, they're a wonderful visual resource for you as well. I found myself really scrutinizing some of those maps and trying to imagine uh, the conflicts over graves that you describe. But let's turn to the next chapter of your book, which is about a wholly different type of scarce resource. That is the imperial examination degrees. This section of the book is a really rich one. And I presume that many of our listeners know the basic facts of these anxieties related to the uh, exam structure in the late imperial period. I'd like to ask you therefore something more about this auspicious shrine of the Sufi Muslim scholar which with which we started the conversation. How is this not Confucian structure tied to an examination system that is very Confucian? What does this story tell us about landscape and power and feng shui in Qing China?
0: Mm, mm, oh, va- absolutely fascinating. Well, I mean, one thing I'll just say is, you know, the question of Feng Shui's relationship to Confucianism is a fascinating question of intellectual history that I don't engage much in the book, but it is worth pointing out uh, that I do mention Zhu Xi, the great Neo-Confucian of the Song period, uh, kind of likes Feng Shui, uh, you know, that that actually uh, the Confucians are pretty much okay with Feng Shui, especially by the Qing period, especially compared to something like Christianity. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what I mean, or the or the or the organized religious cults or things like that, right? Um Feng Shui is something that you know, the elite do. and and again, they know that the commoners want to do it too, and so that's why they sometimes have to make comments or criticisms about it. Um, so on the question of what does it tell us about the examinations? Well, the first thing is for that Sufi shrine, um, it, it's clear to me that the Muslim community realized they were they were acquiring a very very uh, lucrative piece of real estate in the center of a prefectural examination um, uh, examining town. Uh, the exams were held in Bowning. Um, You know, um, you know, on on the examination schedule, um, people would descend on the city and everything like that. And when all of those scholars from across the prefecture. And it was a pretty populated prefecture by the, uh, you know, by the Qing period, especially the second half of the Qing period, coming to town, they they want auspicious conditions, you know, when people descend on that city, right, they want they want the lands, they want the, the cityscape to look like this is a, a cityscape designed for success, not one designed for failure, right? In the state, you know, the state, this is a, this is another thing, right? I mean, bounding in Nambu County, Are in what in the Qing period geographically was northern Sichuan. This is not far away from the center of the White Lotus Rebellion. This is not far. This is not a particularly easy area for the for the empire to necessarily govern. It's kind of a uh, you know it's a periphery of sorts, right? And I mentioned that of its examination performance is is terrible, right? I mean, in but in fact. It isn't actually that terrible in, in, in the provincial average. It's just about average. Nambu produced maybe four or five or six. There's a disagreement about this, which is for another day. Jinxu degree holders during the dynasty. The average Sichuan county only produced four or five or six, something along that line. Chengdu and, you know, the, the, the obvious center of Chengdu dominated you know, within, in terms of the provincial quotas, you know, et cetera, for for provincial degrees, all that. Examination performance was not particularly good in this area. And so magistrates come in and where are they coming in from? They're coming in from Hunan. They're coming in from Jilijiang, They're coming in from Jiangsu. What type of families are they coming from? They're coming from wealthy, well-connected families often. They get to this area and what are you going to say? Are you going to look the local people of Nambu County or Northern Sichuan in the eyes and say, all of you are untalented, which is why you have not been able to pass the exam and get a presented presented scholar, a junior degree holder for decades, even half a century. No, no, we know that's not what they said. What did they say? They said, hey, hey, you guys are just temporarily unlucky. Being permanently untalented was a far worse fate than being temporarily unlucky. And the thing about luck is that in the Qing Dynasty, we know how to deal with that. So they set to work, right? Building pagodas, moving bridges, making the town better, right? In in ways that people that people wanted and cared about, so that when the scholars showed up every, you know, on the schedule for the exams, you know, they they descended upon Bounding. They said. This is a place that offers the exams. I got a chance. You know what I mean? And so it was important for the state to, to take that into consideration, right? To make sure everybody has to have a fair chance. And you and you need to make sure that the scholars in Northern Sichuan, even though their performance was not particularly good, you especially need to make sure that they that they have it, they have the auspicious conditions at which to succeed. Right, that that the state, you know, is 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 needs to do that. And by the way, not to get ahead of ourselves here, this is part of the reason why church building and uh, missionary activity and stuff, especially in nineteenth-century China, uh, in the decades after the Opium War, that stuff is so sensitive, especially for the gentry, um, because it, it it really can be seen as a, a sabotage of of the exam, you know, uh, of the exam chances. Um, so yeah. That's that's what I would say.
1: Yeah. And I mean, as you say in the book, these infrastructural developments also have very real effects on the economy. You know, if you have a bridge, you can cross a river.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, that's that's totally right. I mean, I, I talk about how, you know, there's this idea of building a tower and the tower will basically enable if it's well placed, you know, the 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 wealth of the locality won't flow away right it will some of the wealth some of the talents some of the fortune will stay with the locality and i also i point out how that that rhetoric, that 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 invocation of feng Shui in the political or legal arena, specifically legal here, is totally interwoven with common water rights, right? it's it's what are the what are the common rivers that is are public use for the wells of the local county, of the local prefecture, et cetera, and what can be diverted away for agriculture, You know, all of that, right? So it's it's all of that, you know, about quote unquote, the wealth running away, all of that. It has real effects. Um, and in the book, you really can see how um, how how those how those arguments played out in the legal system.
1: Yeah, I mean, throughout the book, we see many examples of how Feng Shui manages anxieties about, as we've said, things like resources, wealth, status, safety, um, the incursion of foreign types of. Uh, power structures, right, right. Uh, and upon uh, um, churches, right? <laughs> um, but in the fourth chapter of the book, it also emerges explicitly as a form of insurance, which mm-hmm. is actually something I was thinking about as I was reading the whole book. It seems mm-hmm. like there's something about using feng shui to make sure you can develop projects the way you want to develop them, that you can yeah. be economically stable because your trees aren't going to be getting cut down, right? Right. So how does this Idea of insurance work, for example, in chapter four, in reference to infrastructural projects and mines. Why would you need to insure with feng shui?
0: Yeah, no, it's it's a great question. Yeah, well, I mean, the topic of feng shui and mining is just it's it's absolutely fascinating, and certainly was one of the first uh, things that. that uh, Westerners in the 19th century noticed about feng shui and they complained about it. Uh, you know, they're they, they, they the, the Chinese are invoking feng shui. They don't want us to open coal mines, etc. Well, it turns out that, you know, there's a long precedent uh, for invoking feng shui to regulate uh, mineral rights and regulate mining activities in China. Um, so the thing about insurance is it goes the logic is like this. Why would a shop owner like the per- a person who operates an oil press shop or a miner, invite a feng shui master to look at the site of his shop or to look at uh, the opening of a mine or something like that. Because you want on the record somebody to say, it doesn't hurt feng shui, right? You want to preempt the litigation, so the there's no doubt about it that jailomancers and in young officers um uh, in yang experts in yangsng, et cetera, were playing the role of insurance agents uh, in in nineteenth century China, right? If you have a flammable industry, you know, et cetera, you know, they need to, you know, is this a good place uh, to put a to put something that might explode, <laughs> okay? Uh, and it shouldn't be that close to the walled. Uh, to the wooden wall towns, especially our most important buildings, for instance, much like zoning laws today. Um, so when it comes to mining, the thing about feng shui and mining is this is really where um, I make the claim that the Qing state just unambiguously recognizes feng shui is a consideration for mining, um, and I point out in the law code um, this 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 line. It's right in the Daqing lead that says you know, any area with graves, um, you cannot mine, uh, you know, it, it's a chapter on um, certain types of mining activity. So that doesn't mean that economic activity was impossible. Of course, it doesn't mean that, right? Um, it means that basically you have two options in an area that has graves or other sensitive sites, right? Schools, et cetera. You either can ban mining in that area or you can move the gravesites, sites, right? Um, and so, um, you know, essentially, be, you know, um, sometimes people were willing to move their grave sites if they got a payoff. So you could think about it of, you know, there was kind of a feng shui tax uh, on mining, right? That the state recognized. And why did the state recognize that? Because the state recognized the immense costs and importance of burial. For people across Qing society, it needed the people to care about graves. It needed people to care about ancestors. It's the basis of the state's functioning, its ritual identity, right? So you need to recognize the state realizes for a poor family, they might fundraise, they might you know, people, Matt Summer talks about in his book, people sold their wives to bury their parents. You know, I mean, it's it's it was so it was it was such a, an important thing in this in this universe. Um, so the state had to recognize that look, um, you know, if there's gonna be something like mining happening in an area, um, you can't just do it, right? The the people who has graves there or something like that, they have a say. They have a real say. Um, and you got to negotiate with them. So many, many contrasts, especially for coal mining, especially in Ba County. And I just want to draw attention to the fabulous work of Gilbert uh, 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 Chenjula. Uh, uh, he's just a f- fabulous scholar. He's a great friend, uh, and he shared with me uh, some of his archives from Ba County about coal. I, I mentioned that in the book, um, and he, you know he drew them to my attention in 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 parts because a lot of the places where coal exists are exactly the places where people bury the dead, right? Peripheral mountain lands, right? That's what's left in the 19th century. So it's not surprising that, you know, these, you know, these economic processes and relationships are going to be duped out at the intersection of law and religion. And that's exactly what happened in 19th century Qing China, right? So I I love the mining chapter. I think it, I think it explains, I, I hope it explains a lot um and um you also get a lot of my advisor Maddie zellin's I- influence in that chapter i it, salt is really really interesting i if you don't mind i'd love to say something about salt Please because do. it's it's noticeable that in the sichuan case the salt merchants are often thought of knowing feng shui the best and salt is salt wells are not i i haven't i never saw i didn't see so many salt wells being accused of harming feng shui salt is a a fortune salt is great right um salt requires an immense amount of financial investment to drill all that way down there and it's a guessing game about where the good brine might be located Mm -hmm. so the salt well merchants employed geomancers to help them find the good spots. And the salt merchants who did find the good spots get fabulously wealthy and then give people advice on where to bury their parents. Be, so, so you have the salt merchants in Sichuan as being some of the most knowledgeable people about feng shui. And I think that it that example is important because it complicates this notion of feng shui being a completely anti-economic activity. Of course it isn't. It definitely isn't. Um, but it certainly is completely involved with the regulation of of, of exploitation of resources. And that's another great example of, of where it goes on the other end of the spectrum.
1: I mean, you make this comparison uh, explicitly, but that section of your book really reads like the kind of resource Discovery in the American West, right? Like the folks who are drilling wells and striking it rich, right, and becoming the oil merchants of Texas. I don't know instead of the salt merchants of Zigong. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, I, I,
0: I, there's a line in the book. I hate. I don't mean to quote myself. I'm not this type of person. Since you brought it up, there's this line. I think I say salt merchants and feng shui masters settled the West. Yeah. Yeah, yeah,
1: that's the one I was thinking of.
0: Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Um.
1: So you just, you know, just in your last few answers described us for us quite eloquently how feng shui actually was not only largely rationally implemented, but Mm. it also was a way to craft political narratives, Mm. right? But And this this is really visible when those narratives start to collapse. Mm. In the last chapter of your book, the one that I noted at the outset, it's explicitly concerned with the Qing state's encounter with Western powers, technologies, discourses. Yes. How did this Qing political narrative collapse and what happens, what new story emerges if we read that decline through feng shui?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, well, the first thing that I would point out, and I think that, you know, this is, this book, you know, is not a, um, how do I say it? um, You know, as I say, it's indebted to many people. And I actually found myself going back to Mary Wright, to John King Fairbank, uh, to many of the foundational uh, sinologists of the 20th century, who grappled with some of these questions and grappled with some of this history, and certainly in one chapter at the end of a book that's largely about Sichuan, I I I don't do an extensive, exhaustive um, encounter, you know, history of the encounter. There are so many examples of British. you know, British, uh, you know, merchants or whatever coming up against feng shui claims, et cetera, missionaries, Germans, et cetera. It it runs the gamut. But I wanted to show one important thing, which is I what I wanted to show is that it was not these common poor people in China um, who were complaining about feng shui the minute that the British showed up because they were like, let's confuse the British. So what do we got? Oh, let's talk about that. No. Number one is the British and other foreign powers walked into a existing legal tradition and they encountered that legal tradition very, very in a very real way. They got they litigation was brought against them. So this is why the modern notion of feng shui as a feng shui, your living room, new age thing is not a nineteenth-century idea. It's a very twentieth-century idea, specifically the New Age movement. The nineteenth-century, uh, you know, or the nineteenth-century missionaries and for the, you know, foreign diplomats, etc. They encountered feng shui in the law, in politics. They knew this. They knew my story. They just didn't take it seriously, right? They didn't like it, right? They, you know, so in a sense, I have to go back to them and show pe- and remind people, like, hey. There were people who noticed this stuff. There were people who said, There are tons of feng shui lawsuits in China, right? You know, uh, it's just that we didn't really look at them that much in the 20th century. So, what I show is that some of the most, some of the smartest people in the country, some of the most important officials of the Qing state were concerned about feng shui issues after the Opium War, after the Taiping Civil War, especially. And I start chapter five with an incredible, incredible memorial. I think by from Lee Hong Jong, where you know he's he, it's a side of Lee Hong Jong we never see because we always focus on him as the great reformer. We always see him, you know, the, you know, let's build all this stuff, let's do it. Well, no, Lee Hong was from Anhui. Li Hongzhang knew about feng shui. He knew it well. And There's a good footnote that people shouldn't... I, I, there's a great dissertation from China that talks about um, Li Hongzhang's personal letters and a, a moving letter to his son all about the selecting the gravesite of, of his deceased wife um, towards the end of his life. I mean, Li Hongzhang knew this stuff and he knew the stakes for China. He knew that if you undermine what the legal precedents have been, you could have chaos. Um, and that came out, that came out in the 1860s. Now, what happens, what happens is, is that in the 1870s and 1880s and 1890s, the, there's a debate, right? right? Some officials want to go one way. Some officials are against it, right? They're, they, all of these officials are complicated people. Um, and feng shui is in the memorials. It's what they're talking about, right? It's there's They're coming up with ideas of saying, look, we can, th- th- this site for, in front of the railway has really bad feng shui. This family is so poor, it floods this great cemetery all the time. We'll move it to a better site. It'll have better feng shui. This is the kind of stuff that some of those important officials of the Qing empire were talking about. So I just bring it back for people and I want people to see that at this moment, right, this just critical pivotal moment, you get this voice of of like conservation, right? It's like at the moment of industrialization, you get this voice of of conservation. And in China, that voice of conservation was expressed and came out in in the rhetoric and language of feng shui. Right. Because that's what was there. Right. Um, but it, it it countered this huge thing. So, of course, you know, I, I want people to read that chapter and think about, you know, what it means for us. Right. What it means we're still living in this world. Right. We're still living in the world of debates over pipelines and de- debates over, you know, what you have to check development. How do you check it? Right. Um, the Ching had an answer that worked for a very long time. Until it didn't, right? until until it didn't, right? and then and then the legal system comes under this immense pressure. Um we're confronting similar issues today, actually. so I, I hope that the book enables people to think about those,
1: yeah. So maybe, you know, my second to last question will be about that, which is to say, uh, at the symposium we recently attended, the Q and a of your talk turned quite facetious, quite facetiously to contemporary China. Um, and questions about Xi Jinping's feng shui. Mm. Um, But I wanna ask you a more serious question, like the ones that you were just bringing up about the comparative and contemporary value of your work. Mm -hmm. One thing that was striking to me is the way in which your book on feng shui and the management of economic concerns, especially in marginalized and struggling rural areas, feels familiar when we think about, for example, just transition and the renewable economy in the US. Um, it's a project that is, of course, presented as a technologically progressive one mm-hmm. and embraced by cities, right, who get their power from solar installations in the countryside, but often vehemently opposed by rural communities who resent interventions in their landscape for mm-hmm. variously technical, economic, and affective reasons that are actually quite more rational than perhaps some of the urban elites are willing to allow, right? Mm. And certainly the comparison with Feng Shui's rationality right, as a system of knowledge Mm. resonates for me here. So I'm not saying this is a rigorous comparison. Um, I doubt that rural Americans are turning to feng shui per se, but I wonder how your research on early modern China informs your participation in some of those initiatives related to environmental futures that we heard about in your bio.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's a great question and thank you so much for it. I mean, I think in terms of you know, obviously, there. I, I hope that the book, this book, will be of interest to environmental historians and and people involved in environmental studies broadly. The thing about feng shui in the Qing in the Qing archive is, sometimes it can be, you know, clearly economic in, in its invocation, right? And oftentimes, if I may say, um, it looks a bit like Nindyism, right? Sometimes, right? You know, wealthy families saying, "Not in my backyard," right? sometimes though it looks like something different right sometimes it looks like a description of a of a water system that's about to collapse right or it's a description of um you know a sense that mining for coal might really harm the health of people in an area and thus their futures I feel like that, that that those two sides of feng shui are so rel- they're so resonant with the kind of sta- the state of environmental politics and the environmental movement in the states today, right? On the one hand, we have, you know, the lovely lush neighborhoods of Palo Alto, which has very good feng shui. Um and we also have, you know, people who are at the front lines of fighting fossil fuel expansion. Um and, you know, coming up with arguments to justify leaving resources and minerals in the ground. And what they tell us is that if you exploit tar sands or, or, or something you know like that, um, there will be inauspicious consequences in the future. There will be floods. There will be droughts. There will be warmer temperatures. There will be failed crops. And that's exactly what the Feng Shui masters told people in Qing Dynasty China. So Qing Dynasty China is not so far away from us the world that they inhabited um, can tell us a lot about our own world.
1: Thank you so much. Uh, That really speaks to the stakes of your book. Um, But before I let you go, Mm -hmm. I will end with the traditional ending question of the new books podcast. Uh, Can you tell us about your next project?
0: Absolutely. So finally, I mean, I guess after all these years, I, I worked on this book for over a decade, and I'm going to go back now to the Islam Project, uh, to Muslims. And um, one of the things I was really inspired by, I've had great teachers in this field as well, and back from Jonathan Littman as an undergraduate at Harvard, and then to Zvi, and then to most recently in Berlin, hanging out with Sarah Schneewind. Um, I've gotten a little bit into Ming dynasty history. And the Ming dynasty is extremely important for the history of Islam and the development of Muslim communities in China. And it's one of the great scholarly lacuna, um, lacuna, I guess, of of of, of this historiography of Islam in China, right? Which focuses a lot on beginnings and on ends, like you know, the Qing state or the 20th century. But the Ming had a really, really interesting relationship to Islam um, that was quite distinct from the Manchu Ching's, I think, um, you know relationship and the status of Muslims between these two dynasties was actually quite different. I want to explore that in my next book. Uh, and so I think it's going to be a social history of Muslims along the Grand Canal and in North China during the Ming Dynasty, but um, we'll see how it develops.
1: Perhaps you'll stumble into another trove of resources and archive and develop an entirely different project, but time will tell. Thank you, Tristan, for the time you spent with us today. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in.
0: Thank you so much.